mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, about a half million Ohio households are unbanked, and even more are considered underbanked. What are the barriers to providing access to basic financial services, and how can the industry address the issue? Also this morning, Law and Religion in Colonial America. The latest book by ONU law professor Scott Gerber examines the ways in which various factions in the original colonies embraced or rejected religious liberty and how those earliest laws shaped the way we think about the subject today. And happening around town, downtown Findlay's Fall Art Walk is coming up. It's a celebration of both the creative community and local business. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Monday, October 30th, 2023. And it feels like autumn now. (laughs) Last week was absolutely gorgeous, and that is oh but a memory. Uh, We are definitely into autumn this week, and maybe that is a good thing. I saw this story on the uh, Newswire. It says, unseasonably... Good weather can have an impact on our decision-making. Researchers have found that when the weather is unexpectedly sunny and nice, people tend to take more risks, such as gambling, making impulse purchases, even investing in the stock market. According to this report, and this was from MSN, This behavior can be linked to concepts like prediction error, where a deviation from expectations triggers risk-taking tendencies. Um, They also call it optimism bias, which leads people to believe that positive events are more likely to happen than negative ones. And it all stems from the nice weather, we're in a good mood, And we're more optimistic, and sometimes that can come back and bite us. Um, Now, other studies are more skeptical of this. They have found mixed trends in the impact of weather on stock market activity and and so on. Certainly last week, um, even though we were experiencing very nice weather, the stock market uh, really struggled last week. So I don't know that there's... A broad impact, but individually, um, I think there's probably something to that. Experts uh, advise taking your time to consider major decisions and not acting impulsively based on the immediate influence of good weather. Well, you will not have to worry about that this week. (laughs) You will not have to worry about that this week. So maybe in some respects... It is a good thing that the uh, really nice, unseasonable weather is behind us now. I'm just trying. I'm looking for any positive spin I can put. (laughs) The fact that the weather is turned here. Um, So uh, this is uh, kind of interesting with uh, Halloween because I think they do this every year right around Halloween. It's another one of those year-end lists we get in the uh, fourth quarter of the year. Uh, The folks at McAfee Labs are out with their list of the most dangerous celebrities to search for. And uh, the the web searches that pull up the most dangerous results. And this year, Ryan Gosling 
is the most dangerous person you can search for online. Ryan Gosling's name is frequently used by scammers to create malware. People search for Ryan Gosling, all of the results come up, you click on those, and there's a lot of malware in some of those sites. Other celebrities featured on risky sites include Emily Blunt, Jennifer Lopez, Zendaya, Elon Musk, and the Latin singer Bad Bunny. In today's culture, according to Steve Grobma of McAfee, in today's culture where celebrity news and entertainment are part of many people's daily lives, people are putting speed and convenience over their own online protection. Consumers need to say, stay vigilant and think twice before clicking. So, word of advice there, the most dangerous celebrity to search for is Ryan Gosling, which seems very random, but that's what they say. Uh, So here is, among the first things you need to know this morning, the most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day, here is the, uh, the thing that we have to be concerned about every day. There's something we have to be worried about, concerned with, fearful of. Kava, K-A-V-A, becoming more and more popular as an alternative to alcohol. But is it safe? I did not know about this, but I'm not a heavy drinker. I mean, I guess those who are may be more familiar. The beverage, kava, it is made from a plant root, sometimes known as nature's Xanax, for its calming effect. However, doctors are now warning that the supplement has been linked to liver damage and can be dangerous for those on certain medications. Complications have been observed from as early as several weeks to as long as 10 years or two years from several weeks to two years after intake, with the average duration being four and a half months. There is no standard procedure for cultivating and harvesting kava, and the Food and Drug Administration does not regulate supplements as strictly as it does medications. So doctors are encouraging people to discuss using kava with their doctors. Kava, that is the uh, latest thing that we have to uh, worry about. Kava. Never heard of that stuff, but maybe you have. And if you have, use caution. Hey, with uh, Halloween being tomorrow, and I think for most of us here locally, Halloween is passed, right? We're past the Halloween parade. Trick or treat was on Saturday. And so pretty much the Halloween thing is over. But technically, Halloween is tomorrow. And with that, the TSA is reminding travelers to beware when they pass through airport security at Halloween. And apparently this always happens. Uh, Airport security always struggles with this right around this time of year. TSA spokesperson Lisa, uh, Lisa Farbstein says passengers young and old can fly in costume. It is it is true. You can fly in costume, but the TSA advises you keep makeup to a minimum so that security agents can still recognize you at the identification checkpoint. <laughs> so that means no masks or be ready to remove any Halloween masks. And they also advise large bags of candy should be removed from carry-on bags and placed in their own bin. Again, Generally speaking, you can take candy uh, with you carry-on on on your flight. You can take it through security. 
because it's not liquid. So you're okay, but, and it's dry. So you can't have, but it does need to be in its own bin. They go on to say, the TSA says, uh, costume props like hatchets, pitchforks, and things like that. No, no, no. You cannot carry those. Even if they are obviously props and fakes, no. They have to go in your checked bags. And replicas of explosives like fake grenades are prohibited entirely. You can't carry them on. You can't put them in your checked luggage either. Again, even if they are fake, even if it is obvious they are fake, they are still a no-no. So, something to keep in mind if you fly on Halloween. Because somebody, you know, they, they put these statements out because somebody tries it. Somebody tries to go through security with a fake knife or something like that because it's part of their Halloween costume and it is still a no-no. They, you know, it does not work. And lastly this morning, among the first things you need to know, uh, the most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day, you remember the uh, story about the cheating incident at that fishing tournament in Cleveland? Well, now, one of the men involved in that cheating incident last year now is accused of illegally hunting deer in Pennsylvania. Chase Kaminsky was ordered earlier this year to spend 10 days in jail after pleading guilty to charges stemming from the Cleveland Championship Fishing Tournament of 2022, Kaminsky and another man were found to have inserted weights into their fishing catch to make their haul seem like it was more than it actually was. They were disqualified from the tournament, and they were not able to collect their prize. Now Pennsylvania authorities have charged Mr. Kaminsky with Eight counts involving the illegal poaching of deer in the Keystone State. This guy just cannot stay out of trouble. I just thought that was uh, that was interesting. There you go. Some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Monday morning started. WFIN News. I'm Matt Demchek. Your WTOL 11 weather. Partly cloudy today with a high in the mid-40s. Just a few clouds tonight. Uh, low in the upper 20s. The Finley Police Department says a person was found dead inside a vehicle that had entered a retention pond. Police say it happened near 1020 Interstate Court on Saturday night. The first officers arrived on the scene as the vehicle sunk below the water about 30 yards from the bank. The Hancock County dive team was contacted and arrived on scene to recover the vehicle. Once the vehicle was recovered, it was learned that the driver and sole occupant was still inside and was deceased. Police say the incident remains under investigation. Get more on our website. A man was arrested after Ohio State Highway Patrol trooper seized about two pounds of methamphetamine from his vehicle during a traffic stop in Hocking County. According to OSHP, troopers stopped a GMC terrain on U.S. Route 33 for a window tint violation. Troopers searched the vehicle and found approximately two pounds of meth worth nearly $6,000. Torin was taken to the Hocking County Jail, charged with possession of drugs, aggravated trafficking in drugs, and tampering with evidence. Kate Burdett, ONN. The verdict is in in the trial of a former state lawmaker from Northeast Ohio. Former Ohio State Representative Bob Young has been found guilty of domestic violence connected to an incident with his wife back in July. Young was acquitted on a charge of assault connected to his brother. These incidents forced Young's resignation a couple months ago. Sentencing will be at a later date. I'm Colin Dorsey. 
The Finley-Hancock County Public Library is inviting people to attend Author Fest and meet, mingle, and support local authors. We had 22 participating authors from Northwest Ohio and the surrounding area writing in a variety of genres, including Edgar Award-winning author Mindy McGinnis, cozy mystery author Misty Simon, and comic book author and publisher Josh Nealis. Melody Flick is Adult Services Librarian at the Finley-Hancock County Public Library. AuthorFest is coming up on Friday, November 3rd from 5.30 to 8 p.m. Get more details about it in the story on our website. And remember, you can always get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. Matt Demchek for 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM. Well, the latest data from the FDIC shows that 5.9 million households in the U.S. are unbanked. In Ohio, it's about 3.5% of the population, which may not sound significant, but that still works out to about a half a million households, give or take. Jackie Gutierrez is with us this morning. She is a financial expert at J.P. Morgan Chase. And Jackie, first of all, explain what it means to be unbanked. Absolutely, Chris, and good morning. Thank you for having me. You know, when we're, you're thinking about being unbanked or also underbanked, it actually refers to people who do not regularly use products or services offered by a traditional bank and or they lack access to quality financial services. And, you know, one thing that I always want to share is that here at Chase, we believe everyone should have access to the benefits that banking services like a checking account can offer. There are different tools for budgeting, savings and resources to really be able to help you on your financial journey. So you've got those who are unbanked, who have no banking products uh, whatsoever, uh, maybe not even a checking account. And then, as you mentioned, there are those who are underbanked, which are those who have a bank account, but are still somewhat distrustful of banking institutions and therefore do not take advantages Uh, take advantage of all of the tools and services that they can offer. So what leads to this phenomenon? You know, there was actually a 2021 FDIC report um, that brought up some of the concerns also amongst underbanked consumers, those being inflation, food affordability, and housing, all common concerns held by most consumers, right? But the underbanked individuals are disproportionately impacted by these challenges. Some of the biggest drawbacks of being underbanked are the additional cost and time commitment required to manage paychecks and bills. And when you're thinking about why are they not taking advantage, right? Oftentimes, there could be lack of knowledge, right? There might be myths and misconceptions out there of why they cannot be part of the banking ecosystem. So what what leads to that uh, that mindset? And I, I guess I'm I'm wondering what are some of those misperceptions that people have that can lead to that mindset? You know, some uh, feel that they there may be a, a need to significantly have um, a lot of income to open up a bank account, right? There are many bank account products out there and that are available that require no minimum deposit. Chase Secure Banking, for example, is one of them. There's no minimum deposit to get started and there are no overdraft fees. Um, so really Chase helps customers spend only what they have. It also offers early direct deposit to help you get money sooner up to two days earlier. 
Another misconception is the requirements needed to be able to become part of the financial institution, right? That they won't meet those requirements. So one of the things that I always recommend is not to hesitate to ask questions about what is required to open an account, visiting a local branch or chatting with a representative online to understand what documentation is required and accepted is can definitely help you. Um, to be able to become part of that ecosystem. Now, you were mentioning earlier a couple of the challenges, the disadvantage that these individuals uh, put themselves in, uh, the challenges that they experience by virtue of the fact that they are unbanked or underbanked. What are some of the other uh, challenges that these individuals may encounter? You know, when you're thinking about time and money, right, when you are using alternative banking services, like, for example, check cashing stores, Mm -hmm. right, you have fees that you're paying, right? And those may be high, unnecessary fees. And then you have the other component of time, right? We know that uh, we have so many competing responsibilities and competing priorities, right? And time is essential. So now when you're finding yourself not being, not having a bank account, you may need to now purchase money orders at different locations to be able to possibly pay a bill, right? That's time consuming. And now you're paying fees for every money order that you need to purchase, right? And that costs money. So you might end up having to pay unnecessary um, fees, right? When in reality, it could, you can take part and take advantage of a banking product that can really minimize that. Now, I guess uh, off top of my head, the the natural assumption is that uh, individuals who are unbanked or underbanked are those who may uh, be living under the poverty line, maybe significantly under the poverty line. Um, do you know how much do we know about the demographics of individuals who fall into this category? That is a great question. Um, now, the part here that is really important to remember, though, right, is that, again, going back to that myth, oftentimes um, for individuals, they may think that there's a significant amount that is needed to be able to open an account, mm-hmm. right? I'll give you an example with the, uh, the Chase Secure Banking account. There is no minimum deposit right, to be able to open it and really start taking advantage of the tools and resources that come along with that account, right? So maybe individuals may feel, I cannot afford it, right? It may be too much. Um, I would always suggest speak to someone, right? Um, we may have a product that can help you, right? Especially well, that- even if you feel that you are struggling financially. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's it's quite possible that someone hearing us talk about this may fall into that unbanked or underbanked category. What is the message then? How do does somebody who um, is in that situation get started? You know, I always say, don't be afraid to ask for help ask questions, right? Visit um, a branch location. Uh, We have over 4,700 across the country. And if you can't come and visit the branch, um, reach out, right, via online or through the customer service line where we can guide you and provide you additional support, right, to be able to see if you can take advantage, again, of some of these resources available to everyone. And then what steps 
after getting started, what would be the next steps that that people can take to uh, improve their financial health and and feel better about it uh, during that 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 process? I love, love that question, Ryan, because it's all around that planning piece of once you are started, once you've taken advantage of uh, at least being banked within a financial institution. Mm -hmm. uh, One tip that I always recommend is set and stick to a budget, right? Try to be able to evaluate your current and future expenses, some of those spending habits, um, and, and create that budget. Oftentimes we're afraid to do that, but it's really about taking a look to see what is the income and what are some expenses that you have going on and are you on track to meet your financial goals? And the other one is establish an emergency fund. Again, oftentimes we feel that an emergency fund needs to be, you know, funded by an exaggerated dollar amount, but it's really all around the habit of being able to start saving, even if it's in a small dollar amount. Mm -hmm. Uh, Little steps that can make a big difference. And one of the most important ones is to address this issue of being unbanked or underbanked. And again, Jackie Gutierrez is a Chase financial expert. You mentioned that you have uh, a number of tools, many financial institutions do to help those who fall into this category. Where do folks learn more? Absolutely. You can visit chase.com forward slash financial goals. And there you can find additional information and resources to really be able to get you started on that financial journey. Jackie, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great day. So if you are a regular listener to the program, we you know that we uh, frequently speak with uh, Dr. Scott Gerber. He is a uh, professor of law at the Ohio Northern University Pettit School of Law. He has a new book out. His latest title is called Law and Religion in Colonial America, in, in which he examines the ways in which the original colonies, um, in most cases, embraced but in some cases rejected the idea of religious liberty and how those earliest uh, uh, approaches or thoughts on the subject continue to shape the way we think about religious liberty today. And uh, Scott, thanks very much for uh, taking the time. First of all, we appreciate it. Really a fascinating topic uh, in that, especially in that, uh, again, you make the case that while most of the original colonies embraced the concept of religious liberty, it was not a universal construct. Right. My book is actually, the subtitle to the book is The Dissenting Colonies. I look at five of the original 13. I look at five, the five that were founded for religious reasons. Maryland, Rhode Island, and Pennsylvania were founded for religious uh, tolerance purposes, and then Massachusetts and Connecticut were founded to promote a particular type of religion. And, uh, you know, in another book later, I'll talk about colonies that were founded for reasons not related to religion, like like Virginia and New York and things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that, that's actually what, it, what it's about. And, I, you know, I just wanted to see uh, how the law influenced those five uh and that's what I did. Well, I, I think it's really interesting, and, and maybe a lot of folks don't know that those five colonies were actually founded primarily because of the thoughts on religion 
in the day. I mean, that was the reason for the formation of these five colonies. So even though we think today about the separation of church and state or the idea that law and religion, the government and religion uh, should be independent of each other, it's really kind of baked into the formation of the states themselves. Right, and um, the the order of the book will surprise people, but not it, it, it won't when I mention what I'm about to mention. The order is Maryland's first, then Rhode Island, then Pennsylvania, then Connecticut, and then Massachusetts. Most people would expect any book on colonial America to start with Massachusetts. But what I did, I, I started with Maryland because Lord Baltimore was the first person to be committed to this idea of religious toleration. And he originally um, founded a colony in Canada that, that failed so he could so he could do that, in particular, mm. you know, protect Catholics from persecution. He was Catholic. Um, and so that's the, the reason I did that. And then Massachusetts was last, because Massachusetts was actually the last state in the United States, and at this point it would be the United States, to disestablish church and state, and they di- they didn't do that until 1833. Huh. Um, so, yeah, so, that's yeah. That's a surprise. That's a surprise. As a matter of fact, you mentioned uh, Connecticut and Massachusetts in particular were were the two last hold- holdouts. Why? I mean, what was, what was the objection to, again, because we think of this as a founding principle of religious liberty, and yet Connecticut and, Reli- and uh, Massachusetts were two of the uh, of the holdouts that were adamant uh, against that idea. Why? Right. Uh, they were Puritan colonies uh, and uh, founded to escape uh, religious persecution in England um, of Puritans and people that weren't um, members of the Church of England. And so they came over here, and then, of course, they persecuted people that weren't uh, Puritans. And in yeah. Plymouth's case, and Plymouth was part of Massachusetts for a while, uh, uh, the Pilgrims did the same. So that's why. They were kind of hypocritical there. They wanted, they didn't want to be persecuted. They came over here, and they started persecuting anyone that wasn't of their religious persuasion. Really interesting. Um, and, and one of the reasons why this particular book caught my eye is it actually expands on uh, something that we were talking uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, with Bill O'Reilly. His uh, latest title in his Killing series is Killing the Witches, and he makes the argument in that book that one of the reasons why there was such, uh, such a rebellion uh, amongst some in that era of the Salem witch trials was because of all of the restrictive religious laws of the day, and there was a lot of rebellion against that, and you could almost kind of see that coming. Correct, yeah, um, and he's he's right about that, and I talk about uh, the witch trials in my book as well, and you know, they, they quote the Bible, and, and they're literally, you know, Massachusetts and Connecticut w- would cite to the Bible in their laws, and one of the commandments is, thou shalt not uh, permit a witch to live. You know, I'm paraphrasing that, obviously. Mm-hmm. But that's one of the commandments. Yeah. And so, yeah, they use that as a justification to kill people that they thought were witches, and of course, they eventually learned that they're, they weren't witches. Right. 
um, but it was too late to save their lives. One of the tragedies uh, in uh, in colonial America, to be sure. And uh, one of the other things that he brought up in the in the book uh, was that Benjamin Franklin uh, was a, a a student of the Salem witch trials. Really looked at that very carefully when. Uh, when starting to, to to form the idea of the way uh, courts should operate laws and due process and religious liberty and the way it should be baked into the Constitution. So, uh, again, like we mentioned, this is not only about the laws and the mores of the day, but also the way those earliest laws sh- uh, still shape the way we approach uh, this subject even today no exactly and um you know you and i had a segment uh last year i think it was where we were talking about a recent u.s supreme court decision um and it was you know on freedom of religion and all of that mm-hmm. and so i had written an op-ed in the new york post saying that uh the opinion uh was correct and uh, you know I-, I wrote the op-ed because i knew from all my research uh, for this book that just came out last week, Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, the decision was correct. So you're precisely right that, you know, uh, what happens in the past continues to influence what happens today. What was the biggest uh, surprise? As you're researching this, what did you learn that maybe surprised you or that you didn't expect uh, looking at the uh, approach to religious liberty in colonial America? Yeah, that's a good question. There's just such a lot of information in the book. And, you know, when you do legal history like I do, where you get into the original sources and, and all of that, not just rely on what other professors said last year or whatever. It yeah. takes forever, and this took me over a decade. But uh, one of the things that ju- jumps out at me is, the person that was most impressive to me in terms of an honest commitment to uh, religious tolerance was William Penn. You know, because, you know, William Penn founded Pennsylvania because he wanted a haven for persecuted Catholics. But, unlike what they did in Connecticut and Massachusetts, he welcomed other persuasions. He thought, for example, that Catholicism was corrupt, and I'm a Catholic and I don't think it's corrupt, but he thought it was Corrupt, but he nevertheless refused to allow the government to institute laws um, uh, uh, disadvantaging Catholics. So he was really a committed person in terms of the principles of religious tolerance. So he jumped out at me. And uh, it's interesting because, again, as you learn in the book and the more you read about the thoughts on religion and government of the day, that was quite a... Uh, forward-thinking stance. It was uh, it was a bit of an outlier uh, in that respect. Absolutely. And um, Thomas Jefferson uh, said that William Penn was the greatest lawgiver in the history of the world because of that kind of position that he was taking, and that's quite a statement. Where was where was this in in the pecking order again when we're talking about the creation of the Constitution. I mean, it's right there in the First Amendment, the uh, freedom uh, of religion. But where was that in the uh, in the pecking order or the mindset 
of the framers of the Constitution. Was it right there at the top or was this something that was further down the list, if that question makes sense? Yeah, it it would be right there at the top. But I just want to caution your listeners that my book is about my book is about colonial America. And Mm -hmm. what I do is I look at the five colonies. You know, most people, when they do uh, history, American history, they talk about, you know, the, uh, the, the, the federal stuff, mm-hmm. right, like, like you're doing at the moment. And, of course, that's very important. But what, what I did is I talked about each colony because they were all different. Right. And so one of, the, one of the conclusions from the book is that there is no unifying theory of religious uh, liberty in American history because each colony was different in its own way. So even, uh, you know, the three that were pro religious freedom they were different in their own ways on that some better well, I guess, about it than others etc yeah and and i guess that was kind of the the what i was getting to with the uh, with the question is how do we uh, how do we get from the different approaches to religious liberty in especially among those five colonies to where we are today yeah and I, I spoke about this in that New York Post op-ed that I did last year. It, it, it's that w- the United States has been committed to the notion of religious liberty well before the enactment of the First Amendment, mm-hmm. well before that. And uh, again, um, um, uh, Maryland, Rhode Island, and uh, Pennsylvania were committed to it out of the gate, and then Connecticut and Massachusetts were forced to be committed to it by the law eventually. Yeah. It took a long time in Connecticut, 1818, when they finally um, uh, promised religious freedom for everybody, yeah. and then in Massachusetts, as I said, 1833. But my point is that the country has always been strongly committed to the notion of religious freedom. What, what fascinated me is that that, that basic principle uh, is there, but the ways we arrived at it, uh, from again, particularly the five colonies that you examine in the book, uh, are are very different. I mean, the pathway was was different to get there, and the different uh, thoughts on the subject before they were kind of solidified into what we now know as the as the First Amendment. I think is is really fascinating because you know we're all taught in grade school and you know in middle school and high school about uh, religious freedom as being a founding principle, but what we know less about is the way we got there, which is, you know, again, part of what you're examining here. Right, exactly. And what what's unique about my book is that I focus on law as an explanation for how we got where we're at. Mm-hmm. You know, other people write about social history and political right. history and, right. and cultural history, and that's all fine. But I focus on law, and actually one of the uh, blurbs on the back of the book was someone that uh, uh, participated in a workshop at about the manuscript in progress at Brown University um, last year. Uh, David Hall, who's um, in the Harvard Divinity School, and I didn't know him, but he's the leading authority in the world on the Puritans that's still alive. And in his blurb, he just emphasizes how my legal history approach really sheds new light on these issues that people in the past have focused only on through politics Mm-hmm. you know social history and the like right so that's the contribution uh, my legal 
orientation. It, it really is fascinating. Uh, law and religion in colonial America. We've got a link up uh, to it on our webpage if you want to uh, learn more about the book and uh, and pick it up. Again, uh, ONU law professor Scott Gerber with us this morning. Scott, thanks very much for uh, taking the time. We appreciate it. You're welcome. And the publisher is Cambridge University Press, which is one of the the oldest and most elite academic publishers in the world over there in England. And King Charles went there, so there's some pedigree there. <laughs> it is uh, really a fascinating <laughs> book. Scott, thanks very much. Appreciate the time. You're, you're welcome. Bye-bye. This is Good Mornings with Chris Oakes on 1330 WFIN, WFIN.com and 95.5 FM. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. I'm actually kind of surprised that it took this long for someone to come up with this idea. You know how uh, in in the broken news, uh, we typically have at least one story out of Florida. I mean, it just seems like in Florida, they have mastered the art of doing stupid things that put people from the Sunshine State in the broken news. And actually, if you ask people from Florida, it is, in the minds of many, a point of pride, believe it or not, that they they have kind of cornered the market on the broken news. And now, this coming February of 2024, specifically February 24th of 2024, will be, they will hold, the first ever Florida Man Games. It's an Olympic-style competition in which in which each event is inspired by past newsworthy Florida man acts. Events include the weaponized pool noodle mud duel, <laughs> the evading arrest obstacle course, and the Category 5 cash grab. And uh, believe it or not, they have called in celebrity judges uh, for this. Former American gladiators Dan Nitro Clark... And Lori Ice Fetrick will judge the Florida Men Games. And if you have what it takes, this is the uh, the nice thing. It is actually open to entrance from everywhere. If you think you have what it takes, you can register through November 15th. <laughs> First ever Florida Men Games. And in true fashion, we have... Uh, a Florida man act in the broken news here. A man has been arrested uh, who is allegedly involved in a $1.6 million liquor heist in Florida. (laughs) $1.6 million worth of booze. According to police, a group of thieves stole crates of liquor from a distribution center in Gibsonton, They pulled in using semi-trucks. It's hard to imagine that nobody noticed this when it was happening. They pulled in in semi-trucks and stole more than a million and a half dollars worth of booze from this distribution center. Officials tracked the booze to a storage facility in Hialeah, Florida. The uh, shipment was recovered and has since been returned to its rightful owner, But Miguel Angel Rivas faces charges of grand theft and burglary. His co-conspirators remain uh, wanted 
uh, an outstanding warrant has been issued for uh, their arrest, including one woman. It's not just men who get into trouble. Uh, one woman by the name of Ruth Cardero is also wanted in the booze napping case. <laughs> they pulled in with semi trucks and made it. Now that is a bold theft. I mean, why rob a liquor store when you can go for the big stuff and rob a distribution center of one point six million dollars worth of this stuff? You know? Uh, here's another story out of Florida. And again, it's not always men in this case, some women, uh, or a woman, uh, has been arrested for driving a car that looked a little too much like a Florida highway patrol police cruiser. (laughs) Ilulia Pugachev said she liked the patrol cars, tan and black color scheme. And so she had her vehicle painted in the same colors apparently unaware of the law that no vehicle in the state of florida can have the same color scheme as florida highway patrols marked patrol units uh the car in question also did not have a current registration or license plate so that that certainly did not help (laughs) miss pugachev is facing a charge of imitation of a of an FHP Florida Highway Patrol police cruiser. <laughs> she said she just really liked the uh, really liked the color scheme, and so she painted her car same way. But it is a no no. <laughs> Gotta love those stories out of the Sunshine State. Couple of other items here: the uh, broken news, and this from the international file. Actually, both of these items from the uh, international file. You know how the economy has forced many young adults to move back in and live with their parents. And it's not just here in the U.S. In Italy, uh, they have been really struggling with, uh, with the economy of late. And a lot of uh, young adults moving back home to live with their parents. And apparently, at least for this woman in Italy, it's gotten to a breaking point. Situation got so bad that a 75-year-old woman in Pravia sued her two sons, took them to court in an effort to have them evicted from her home. (laughs) The woman claimed that she tried on several occasions to convince her grown sons to find alternate living arrangements uh, because she said they both have jobs. They both have income. They can live on their own. They just refuse to. But despite her pleas, neither of them wanted to move out. Um, According to a report in the local newspaper, uh, the judge sided with mom ruling that while the men still living at home uh, living at home was initially warranted due to the obligation of the parent to provide maintenance to their children, it was no longer justifiable. The judge says it is no longer justifiable given the fact that both of her sons are over the age of 40. <laughs> They're 40 and 42 years old. And it is time, the judge said, to move out and move on. The men now, by order of the court, 
have until December 18th to move out of their mother's home. That's that's pretty desperate. You know that things are getting bad when mom sues her own kids to evict them from her home. (laughs) That is an extreme failure to launch right there. And finally, in the broken news this morning, in Wales, the United Kingdom, a charity-run thrift store is asking their supporters to stop donating their used and unused adult toys. (laughs) You know what we're talking about when we say adult toys, right? The Barnardo's store in Swansea, which supports a children's charity, issued a statement asking donors to be careful of what they bring to the store. The statement reads, in part, please be mindful that we are a children's charity And as such, we have a range of ages on our wonderful volunteer team. We therefore ask that you refrain from donating your used and unused marital aids. (laughs) We would like to remind you that our store has closed-circuit television and security cameras, so these items can be traced back to their owners. We know who's donating The adult toys. Representatives said the statement came after some recent inappropriate donations. Uh, The uh, representative said, We are always hugely appreciative of donations from the community, but it's fair to say that these items aren't quite the sorts of toys that we're looking for. (laughs) Yes, we do take toys, but not those kinds of toys. There you go. That is today's broken news report. An update on the odd and unusual side of the headlines. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. This is Appalachia with OSU Extension. It's harvest season. Drivers will be sharing roads with combines and grain hauling vehicles. Please be alert, especially on roads with limited visibility. Watch out for equipment pulling in and out of fields. Drivers and farmers, let's work together this fall to keep our roads safe and accident-free. This message from WFIN and 95.5 FM. And now your daily download, the numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives. Really interesting new survey of 2,000 women over the age of 35 and almost half, once they reach that age or about that age, believe that they are now, they are only just now entering their era of most confidence. Um, According to this survey... On average, women reach a new level of confidence in who they are as a person after turning 38. That is the magic number. And this jump in self-esteem for women does not happen overnight. Nearly one in three, 29%, felt at least uh, felt least like their true self during their teenage years. That's probably not a surprise um, because, you know, Complying with societal norms is so important when you're a teenager. But one in three felt least like their true self during their teen years. Another 21% say they struggled most during their college age years, uh, roughly 19 to 23, meaning it it took uh, some women upwards of 20 years to embrace who they are. 
But better late than never, more than three in five, 64% in the survey, admit that when compared to their younger years, they are more sure of themselves today. So, ladies, you go. 20, or age 38, reach that era of greatest Very confident lady is with us in the studio this morning. Daniel Wilkin is here from Visit Findlay. Uh, Downtown Findlay's Fall Art Walk is coming up this week. And Danielle, thanks very much for uh, dropping by. We of course. It. Thanks for having me. So uh, coming off a the uh, first summer art walk, uh, which was held, seems like, not all that long ago, Kind of recap that. How did that go? It was first yeah. time for a summer art walk. Yeah, it was our first time. We had wonderful weather. We had great participants. It honestly probably couldn't have gone any better. Yeah. So it's kind of hard to come off of, of that high <laughs> of the August art walk to now um, November. But we're, we're confident we're going to have a good one. And uh, this, again, traditionally it's been a spring and fall thing. So this is one of the uh, traditional times that we do the uh, art walk first uh, Friday in November. So it is coming up this Friday. And once again, a lot of uh, downtown businesses uh, are, are participating with a whole host of artists. Yeah, we have over 35 locations participating, and I think we have the most artists and makers and creators participating this time around than we ever have before, which is always really good to see. And I thought it was really interesting. There are are so much, and and this is always the case, but uh, it really stood out to me. I don't know, maybe there are more, uh, more variety of forms of art. Yeah, yeah, there absolutely is. I was kind of surprised this time around. There are several um, fiber and textile artists, which is a little bit different than we've ever had before. Mm -hmm. Um, False Core Brewing is going to have someone. um, Golden Reserve um, right on Main Street is going to have um, a wool dyeing demonstration. And then Mm -hmm. Marathon Center for the Performing Arts has somebody in their um, gallery this time around that does all textiles as well. It's kind of a little bit different. A little different. And uh, some crafters and, and things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, we're we're so. going to be joined this time um, with an extra special farmers market. So the last farmers okay. market is this is excuse me was last week, um, and um, it, it continues through October. But the farmers market creators and, and vendors are going to do a special uh, farmers market after dark in Dorney Plaza. So okay. this is the first time we've ever had them participate. That's going to be an awful lot of fun because that's a, an art uh, unto itself. Yeah, so. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and it's not just the food. You know, it's we're kind of we've hit peak food season, right. um, produce season, right. um, but we're going to have soap makers, textiles, um, flowers, anything that they can get, they're going to have there. It's going to be really fun. Boy, I tell you, that is uh, definitely an art. It if absolutely you've is. you've tried it, you know that yeah. there's uh, definitely an art to, to uh, all of that. And as we were mentioning a little bit earlier, uh, this is a celebration. We talk about a celebration of the creative community. It's also a terrific celebration for local business. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's probably my favorite thing about Art Walk is it really does meld two different entities together. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't. Th- oops, I don't think I'm going to, going to offend any artists when I say um, that they are maybe not the most business minded individuals. Sure. You know, planning is not necessarily their forethought, but for 
They'll be the first to admit they that will in many be cases. yes. Yeah. <laughs> but for a business owner, they're not just thinking about this weekend. They're thinking about next quarter, and, mm-hmm. and sometimes in the, in July, they're already thinking about ordering for Christmas. Yeah. So it's really fun to see these two types of people kind of come together and, mm-hmm. and work together for a yeah. special event because we need both. I mean, yeah. It's you know it's what makes uh, makes ours a well rounded community is you know all of that, and this is really a celebration. Of yeah, it. and Finley really embraces the arts, whether it's performing arts or visual arts or vocals. No matter what it is, that's something that I really love about this community. So give us all of the details on the uh, Fall Art Walk. As we mentioned, it is coming up on Friday. Yes, it's this Friday from 5 to 9 p.m., rain or shine. But it looks, I'm going to knock on wood, that the weather is going <laughs> to hold off and cooperate. Probably we'll need a jacket, but, yes. you know, it is November. Exactly. So. Hey, if it doesn't snow, we're calling it a win. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, but it's going to have over 35 locations this time around. Um, like I said, we have Dorney Plaza participating um, with the Farmer's Market vendors. Mm-hmm. Finley Art League is having their their fall juried show which is just fantastic to see the local talent yeah marathon center has live music they have their gallery open university of finley is incredibly involved this year um, we have uf orchestra at the jones mansion um, we have um, the slippery rock publication is going to be doing their launch party at marathon center um, the jones building studios are going to be open it's going to be a really fun night we mentioned uh i think last week we were talking with the folks at the uh, library they're yeah. going to have their uh, author fest uh, yeah on that's Friday going well, to be so. great the author fest if you've never gone it's mm-hmm. definitely worth going it's it's just kind of amazing to see the local talent that's here you know the I, hidden gems here yeah, <laughs> I, again uh you talk about uh, various forms of art yeah the art of uh, telling stories uh, of all kinds yeah celebrated with these uh, local authors absolutely uh, and they're also going to be having van buren's acapella group performing mm-hmm. there and that's not the only young talent happening on friday um finley city schools has going to have jefferson students are going to be displaying their art at rise um which is they're also going to be having their temperance bar open which i think is going to be really cool um I I guess that uh, is one of the other things that we should mention when we talk about the creative community. I mean, there are those who do this professionally, and then there are those who do it just for the love of it, including many young people uh, getting involved in the arts and that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. It's amateurs to professionals and everything in between. It's it's great. Yeah. Um, And... On your website, you have a list of all of the businesses that are participating, what they're doing at there, because, uh, you know, they'll be open restaurants for dinner or, you know, downtown merchants uh, will be uh, open for shopping, getting some early Christmas shopping done, but uh, hosting the artists as well. All of that is on the website. Yes. Everything's at visitfinley.com slash artwalk. Okay. Uh, Again, Fall Art Walk is coming up on Friday and it all starts at five o'clock. Five o'clock. That's right. Very good. Uh, we'll circle on on the calendar. Danielle Wilkin from Visit Findlay is with us uh, once again this morning. Danielle, thanks very much for dropping by. Thank you. And that will finish up our podcast for today. I want to thank all of our guests for joining us on the program this morning. And remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each and every day on the show at our webpage. That, of course, goodmornings.net. You can also connect with us on social media, sign up for our daily email newsletter, and more. Again, goodmornings.net. So until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.